two college students that were taking an exam, and they both turn in the exam, this 100-question exam, and ironically, both of the students got 99 out of 100 questions correct. They both happened to miss the exact same question, which leads us to kind of wonder what's going on there. But anyway, as they were grading the exam, it comes to find out that the first student received not only an A on the exam, but an A in the course. While the second student received a failing grade, not just on the exam, but on the whole course as well. So the second student asked the professor why that was, and the professor said, well, you both missed the same question. But even beyond that, the first student, for that question, he wrote, I don't know, and you wrote, me neither. So that <laughs> led me to suspect the rest of your answers as well. Now, for that particular student, that test did not serve the function that it was supposed to serve. The function of a test is to demonstrate what you know, to demonstrate what you already know. In the, in the academic field, a test demonstrates our knowledge. The same thing is true when we talk of testing in terms of testing us as people. When we are tested, what is happening is God is demonstrating the character that we already have. Kind of like a sponge. You ever had a sponge in your kitchen sink and it's all dry and looks nice and new until you put it in a bowl of water to use it and all this gunk starts coming out of it? And all of that was the stuff that the sponge had soaked up that you couldn't tell was there until you put it into the test and then the sponge showed you what was really inside of it. Same thing with test. As we are tested in these ways, it demonstrates the character that we already possess. When we turn to the pages of Scripture, we see many such tests that demonstrate character. We see, for example, humans testing humans. Remember, Queen of Sheba comes to test Solomon for his wisdom. We see uh, Satan testing humans in the story of Job and other stories as well. We see humans testing God. The story of the wilderness wanderings is all about humans testing God when they became hungry and they became thirsty and they faced danger and all these different things. We also see God testing His people. The story of the wilderness wandering, once again, is a story of God testing His people through the manna. But we also see in the pages of Scripture stories of God testing individuals. And this morning we turn to the most well-known story of God testing an individual. It's the story of the sacrifice of, Ab of Isaac by Abraham in Genesis chapter 22. You all listened as we read the story earlier. So let's just begin with verse 1 of this, of the most, one of the most well-known scenes in the Bible. You know, the Bible is full of really spectacular, colorful scenes. Some of them are magnificent. This is not the most magnificent. That would be the cross, with this magnificent scene in Scripture. I think followed closely by the scene in Bethlehem when God became a creature. Then there's other scenes that are incredibly magnificent as well. I think of Exodus 19 as God comes down to the mountain to meet with His people. Or I think of Acts chapter 2 where the church is birthed. So many wonderful scenes. This is one of the most wonderful. The scene on top of Mount Moriah as Abraham lifts the knife to slaughter his son and the angel is dispatched just in time. So we begin in verse 1. And in verse 1, we read, after these things, by the way, I didn't, I failed to mention this. If you want to use a pew Bible, then just turn to page 16. And you'll be right here on our passage in the same translation that I'm using. Page 16, verse 1. <clears throat> after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go 
to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will show you. So right away in the passage, we have a problem that we must contend with. And the problem is that God commands something of Abraham that seems not only uncharacteristic of God, but this is in discord with everything else that God has taught. This is in contradiction to what God has taught His people. Earlier in chapter 9, as the floodwaters recede, God teaches Noah that life is sacred. And anyone who takes life that's made in my image, you will forfeit your own life as a result of that because life is sacred. It's in Egypt where Israel will end up. That's where life is cheap. That's where Hebrew baby boys are thrown into the Nile, but not with God's people. With God's people, life is sacred. And in fact, when Moses gets to the, to the Levitical law, as he gives the Levitical law, God even prohibits sacrificing of humans and sacrificing of children. And so right away we're faced with a difficulty in the passage in which God seems to be commanding something of, of Abraham that is not just uncharacteristic, it's downright contradictory to his character as we know it and his commands as we have been given. So right away we begin to wrestle with that, but the writer Moses relieves the tension for us right away because in verse 1 he says, after these things God tested Abraham. So we know that this is a test. We know, as many times in biblical narratives, we know something that the characters don't know. We know something that God is doing that the characters don't know. Abraham doesn't know this, but we know that this is a test. And while that doesn't relieve all of the, the attention in the passage, because it still seems like a very uncharacteristic test, while it doesn't relieve all of the tension, it does at least let us know, okay, God is up to something here. God is up to something good here. Because James chapter 1 tells us that tests from God are a good thing. They demonstrate the character that we already have. And as God gives us these tests, it is a blessing to us. Count it all joy, James says, when you encounter trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Later on, James is going to say every good and every perfect gift comes from God. And among those are His tests. So we know that God is up to something good here. So that part of the tension is relieved. We know that God doesn't really expect this child sacrifice, but nonetheless, we are intrigued by what God is up to. So God tested Abraham. Here's the test. Take your son, your only son, Isaac. Now what happened to Ishmael? Ishmael is out of the picture. Because in verse 1 it says, after these things. That means after chapter 21. And chapter 21 was when Ishmael and Hagar were put out of the house of Abraham. So Abraham still loves Ishmael, but Ishmael is no longer Abraham's son, quote-unquote. And so Isaac is his only son, and not only is Isaac his only son, it is his dear son. Because Isaac and Abraham now, their hearts have been knit together. Isaac is now precious to Abraham. He is the son of promise. He's the son of their old age. You ever, you ever feel like that grandparents can love grandchildren in ways that, that almost sometimes seem to be more than parents. There's something to do with older age and younger children, that there's a connection there. And so Abraham has connected with Isaac in a very intimate way. He is precious to him. And God asks of Abraham to give him this most beloved of things, this most beloved of children. We think of 1 Samuel 24, verse 24. You remember that? where the plague is, or actually 2 Samuel 24, 24, where the plague is lifted off of Israel. And David says, I will sacrifice to the Lord, but I will not sacrifice something to him that costs me nothing. And so here Abraham is asked to sacrifice something to God that is most precious to him. 
And so this is a test of enormous capacity. But not only is it a test of such incredible difficulty, it is a test that in itself is contradictory because Isaac is the child of promise. Everything that God has promised to to Abraham has been promised through Isaac. If Isaac leaves the scene, nothing of what God has promised to Abraham will be valid. All of the promises of God are wrapped up in the promised son. So not only is this a most difficult test, but this is a test that on its surface seems just completely illogical. God has promised blessings through Isaac. He's promised a nation through Isaac. And now he asks for Isaac to be offered up as a burnt offering. I don't want to be too graphic here, but that means that literally the promises of God go up in smoke. Literally as though Isaac was never born. I don't know if you can get your mind around the horror of what faces Abraham now. Not only to slaughter his son, but to offer him as a burnt offering. And this is the son of promise. And so this cannot possibly make sense to Abraham. Abraham at this moment is a poster child for for Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6. Trust trust in the Lord with all of your heart to your own understanding Abraham has no understanding to lean to now because he has no ability to understand. This makes no sense to him. So he is exemplifying faith. Faith is the assurance of things not seen. Abraham cannot see this. He cannot understand this. And yet, what we notice here is Abraham's obedience. So Abraham rose early the next morning. Now there's two occasions in which you rise early. Well, I guess three. One, if you can't sleep. But really, two occasions if you rise early. One is if you're excited about what's going on, going to happen that day. The other is that if you are deeply resolved to do what you have to do that day. I don't think Abraham qualifies for the first, but I think that Abraham is deeply resolved, deeply committed to follow through on this. Notice what he doesn't do. What he doesn't do was what he did back in chapter 18, where he had that little argument with God, that little dialogue with God. I'm going to Sodom and I'm going to Gomorrah and I'm going to destroy them. Abraham says, well, what? Wait, God, what if you find 50 righteous people there? Okay, what if you find 45? What if you find 40? What if you find 30? What if you find 20 or 10? Abraham doesn't do that now. There's no haggling with God now. God, what if I offer you 10 rams? What if I offer you 20 rams? There's no haggling here. Abraham rises early in the morning He's committed, he's resolved to do what he's going to do. He rises early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took his two young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. So where where God tells Abraham to go to make this sacrifice is not close by. It's a journey of more than three days. They travel three days and then they see it a long ways off. So maybe it was four or five days. Why do you think God had him travel so far? I wonder, why didn't God just say, do this right over here? Why did he ask Abraham to travel so far? And I think, text doesn't tell us, but I think that God wants Abraham to think this thing through. I don't think that God wants impulsive obedience from Abraham. You ever give God impulsive obedience? You know, you just sort of do the right thing right away without thinking about it, and then later on you sort of think it through. Maybe you find a wallet, and right away you do the right thing, and then later on you're like, God doesn't want that. God wants Abraham to think this through. He wants Abraham to meditate on this 
He wants Abraham to spend three or more days walking, thinking nothing about nothing about nothing else except what he must do. He wants he wants intentional obedience. We can put it that way. He wants thought through obedience. He wants obedience without regrets. So Abraham travels three days, and on the third day they see the mount from a far distance. And then verse 5, Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. So Abraham tells the young men that he and the boy are coming back after they go over to the mountain to worship. Now, why does Abraham say that? Is that some sort of white lie? To sort of keep the young men calm. He doesn't want to upset Isaac. doesn't want them to get upset, so he just sort of tells them that to, to sort of bide the time until they get back. I don't think so. I think that when we harmonize that against places like Hebrews 11, verse 17 through 19. This is in your sermon notes. Hebrews 11, 17 through 19. What we see here is that although Abraham doesn't understand this, his faith harmonizes what seems to be contradictory in his mind. Hebrews 11, verse 17 through 19 says, By faith, when he was tested, Abraham offered up Isaac, who had received the promises, and he was in the act of offering up his only son. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. So Abraham doesn't understand this. He's thinking, maybe after I do this sacrifice thing, God's going to do some sort of resurrection of him. But not understanding this, nevertheless, his faith harmonizes what seems to be contradictory in his sight to what he knows to be true in his heart. He knows and believes the promises of God, and what seems to contradict those promises is harmonized by his faith. We face the same thing, don't we? Faith is, like the writer of the Hebrews says in Hebrews 11, verse 1 and 2, faith is the assurance of things not seen. It's the assurance of things not understood, that which you can't grasp, yet nevertheless believe. And so Abraham, there's no way he can possibly understand this. Yet, he obeys because his faith harmonizes the promises of God to reality. Now verse 6, And Abraham took the wood, the burnt offering, and laid it on Isaac his son. You can't help but think there of places like John 19, verse 17, when we're told of Jesus went out bearing His own cross. The parallels here to the cross are unmistakable. Jesus goes to the cross bearing on His back the means of His execution, the means of His sacrifice. Isaac is also given the burden of the wood, which is the means by which He will be sacrificed. The parallels here are tremendous. So Isaac goes up the hill bearing the wood. Jesus goes up the hill bearing the cross. And he took in his hand, Abraham took in his hand the knife, or the fire and the knife. So Abraham has the instruments which will damage the life of Isaac, take the life of Isaac. So they went both of them together. Verse 7, And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, Here am I, my son. Now there's, there's a theme in here. Three times we hear this phrase, Here am I. Three times. First in verse 1, again verse 7, and again in verse 11. Um, twice God speaks to Abraham, and once Isaac speaks to Abraham, and all three times Abraham answers, here am I. And I think that what we see there is a theme of availability. We have this availability that, that, I, that Abraham demonstrates to God. When God calls, he's available right away. And we think of places like Second Chronicles 16, verse 9, where we're told that the eyes of the Lord go to and fro about the earth, looking for those whose hearts are committed to Him. And we see the, the theme of availability there. We think of Samuel, 
when God was calling to Samuel and three times he thought it was Eli, here am I, I'm available, right? And we hold that in distinction to places like Genesis 3 verse 8 when God comes searching for for Adam, Adam and Eve and Adam and Eve are are hiding from him. They're not available. So this is a a picture of availability. Abraham is available to God. Here am I, he says. And behold, uh, Isaac continues, he said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? What a question. How do you answer that question? What a question. You are the lamb, son. I don't know how you answer that question. What a difficult question. But look at how Abraham answers it. Verse 8, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. You know what Abraham does? Pumps the ball to God. He just puts the ball in God's court. Isaac, I'm not understanding what's going on. I'm not even going to attempt to answer this. Your answer lies with God. Which is a safe thing to do. That's a safe policy to have. We don't understand what God is up to. We punt the ball and put it in God's court. He's God, we're not. Ask Him. Alright? Safe policy. Abraham says, God will provide. But notice how Abraham puts it. God will provide for Himself the offering. In that, we see an important concept. And that concept is this. Everything God asks of us, He's already given to us. It's His. Right? Psalm 24, verse 1 says, The earth... The earth and the fullness of the earth is the Lord's. The earth and the fullness thereof belongs to God. It's His. He created it. He created you. Every minute of your time is His. Every ounce of your talent or skill is His. Everything He asks of us are things that He's already given to us. You cannot give to God anything that He has not first given to you. Abraham says God will provide for Himself the offering. Now, if the offering is Isaac, which Abraham thinks it is at this point, who provided Isaac? Isaac was the child of of a miracle. He was the child of promise. God provided Isaac. God, as we know, is going to provide a different sacrifice as well. So everything that we give to God comes from Him. We'll come back to that a little bit later. So he says, God will provide for Himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together, verse 9, and when they came to the place of which God had told him, now the place is Mount Moriah. Anybody know what else happened on Mount Moriah? What else was built on Mount Moriah? The temple. The temple mount was built on Mount Moriah. The place of sacrifice was built on the mount of sacrifice. So they come to the Mount of Moriah, God, which God had told him. Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Here's another problem in the passage. And the problem here in verse 12 is that it seems that God just learned something about Abraham. And the way that Moses tells the story it seems as though God just learned something about Abraham that he wasn't sure about before. Now I know, now that I see you, that you have done this. And we should be careful not to go to that understanding because that's not what Moses is communicating. God doesn't learn something about Abraham that he didn't understand before. What Moses is saying here is nothing different than what James will say in James chapter 2 as James is referencing this occasion. In your sermon notes, James chapter 2 
Verse 21 through 23, James says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? So when we act upon our faith, James will say, verse 25, he'll say that our actions complete our faith. And so when we act upon our faith, we are demonstrating the faith that we already have. What's a test? A test is demonstrating the character that you already have. And so as Abraham acts upon this, God is not learning something that he didn't know before. Rather, God is seeing something demonstrated that's a reality in Abraham's heart. But now that Abraham acts upon it, it becomes a genuine reality in his heart. Because you see, it's really easy for any of us to give anything to God in the hypothetical. You know what I'm talking about? It's, it's easy to hypothetically give God whatever you want to give Him. I'm reminded of the story of the pastor who goes out to one of his members' farm, who was a farmer, and he's talking to this farmer. And he says to the farmer, if you had a hundred pigs, would you give fifty of them to God? Yes, sir, pastor, you know I would. You know I love God. If you had fifty pigs, would you give twenty-five of them to God? Yes, sir, I love God. You, you know how much I love God. You know I'd give Him 25 pigs. If you had 10 pigs, would you give five of them to God? Yes, sir, I would. If you had two pigs, would you give one to God? And at that moment, the farmer said, Hold on, Pastor. You know I only have two pigs. You see, while it was all theoretical, it was easy to commit to God. When it became reality, that's when the rubber hit the road. And that's where faith had to be demonstrated. That farmer demonstrated that he did not have the faith he said he had. Abraham demonstrates that he does. When in reality, the hypothetical is easy. The reality is where faith becomes real. Remember Hannah? The story of Hannah? As she has no son, and she prays to God, God, if you give me a son, I will give you. She follows through on that. But it's really easy to speak of faith in the hypothetical. When it becomes real, that's what James says, now it's completed. Now it's demonstrated. This is what God has said. Now I see that your faith is completed. You've demonstrated the character that you already have. Now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. This most precious of gifts you have not withheld from me. The only son whom you love. You know that we demonstrate the level of love that we have for a thing through what we are willing to sacrifice for it. What you're willing to sacrifice for a thing demonstrates your level of love for that thing. The more you're willing to sacrifice for it, the more important, significant, weightier that thing is to you. Abraham demonstrates his love for God is so great that he is willing to sacrifice the, the most precious earthly thing for him. We're reminded here, of course, of the story uh, Matthew 13, the, par- the parable of the treasure. The guy that finds a treasure in the field and it's so precious to him that he sells everything that he has because that's more important, that's more valuable to him than anything else he could have on earth. And of course, already we're drawing parallels, aren't we? We're drawing parallels to places like Romans 5.8. While we were yet sinners, while you were the enemy of God, He loved you enough to sacrifice His only son. Thinking of John 3.16, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. We're already seeing parallels here. What God was willing to sacrifice for us, He who though He was in the form of God did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
yet was willing to sacrifice all of that for us. We're seeing parallels here, and we're learning of the love of God. So, you have not withheld your only son from me. This 13, and Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. Now, it's caught by its horns so that it's not damaged, right? If it was caught by a leg, if it had a broken leg, or if it was caught by its wool, then it may be a blemished ram. And so it's caught by its horns, which means that it's still perfectly preserved ram and so suitable for sacrifice. But notice how it's caught in the thicket. It's caught in the thicket. Even God caught the ram in the thicket. We said earlier that everything that you give to God came from Him to begin with. That's even your service to Him. Whatever you render to God is, is His. He must do it. He must do it. For... Think of it this way. What if God had said to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to let you off the hook. You don't have to sacrifice Isaac. All you need to do is offer up a ram. You ever tried to catch a ram? I haven't. And I would imagine for an old man and a young boy, I'd imagine it would be pretty doggone impossible. So even if God said to Abraham, Abraham, I'll put you off the hook. Isaac can live if you give a ram. Even then, Abraham couldn't have done it. He still would have had to have offered Isaac. God had to do it for him. God had to catch the ram for him. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 says, He is faithful and He will do it. Even in the catching of the ram, God does this. This ram is caught by its horns and Abraham and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Now let me encourage you, if you have a pen, let me encourage you to underline those words, instead of. Because that's the whole point of the whole passage. A ram instead of Isaac. Verse 14, so Abraham called the name of that place. The Lord will provide. You see a theme there. There's three times. The Lord will provide. As it is said even to this day, on this mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Now verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. This is after Abraham offers the ram. After uh, he offers the ram, the angel says, quoting God, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to the young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now, as we finish that passage, let's ask ourselves, what does this mean? Because sometimes... Don't you find it to be true that sometimes the traditional understanding of the point of a passage is deficient? And we've heard that traditional teaching so many times and so long that we don't even think about it anymore. I think this is the classic passage for us to miss the point and never realize that we missed it. Because if I were to ask you today, what's the point of that passage? The faith of Abraham, right? We've been taught. That passage is about the faith of Abraham. And it's understandable because the faith of Abraham is so dramatic. It's understandable that we would think that that's the main point. Let me suggest to you that's not the point of the passage. I'm not saying the passage is not teaching the incredible faith of Abraham. Absolutely, it's teaching that. 
I'm saying that's not the point of the passage. If that was the point of the passage, then who's the hero of the story? Abraham. If you ever read a passage in your Bible and the hero of that passage is a person, you've read it wrong. Every single passage in your Bible has one hero, and that's Jesus Christ. The hero is not Abraham. So, how do we understand this? When we talk about properly understanding Scripture, we often talk about context, how important context is to understand the context of a passage, and that's very important. There's another thing that's also very important to understand, and it's audience. Who is the passage written to? Who was it written to? Who were the original receivers of the passage? Because you know what? Whatever it meant to them is what it means to us. It doesn't mean something different to us than it meant to the people it was written to. So the audience of this passage, is it the church? Did God write Genesis 22 to the church? Yeah, in a secondary way He did, but not in a primary. Primarily, He wrote this to ancient Israel. Moses wrote this during the wilderness wanderings. And so the people that originally read this were brought out of Egypt, out of slavery. They were the ones that this was written to originally. So what did it mean to them? Now to answer that question, I think it's helpful for us to ask the question, who would the Israelites have identified with in the story? You ever notice whenever you read a story or maybe watch a movie or something, you ever notice if it's a good story that you identify with somebody in the story? You put yourself in the story. And God wants you to do that in the pages of Scripture. He wants you to identify yourself into that story. So who would the Israelites have identified with in this story? It's only two, two options. We might be tempted to say Abraham. But the Israelites did not identify themselves with Abraham. Abraham was the father of Israel, yes. But they identified themselves with Isaac. Because if Isaac doesn't survive Genesis 22, there is no Israel. And that's the whole point to them as they're reading this, as they're hearing this story. If Isaac doesn't survive Genesis 22, there is no Israel. Isaac's son, of course, would be Jacob, renamed to Israel later on. And so that's who they identified with. You may be familiar with the fact that Orthodox Jews, even today, on every holiday, there will be a specific passage of Scripture, the same one every year, that Orthodox Jews will read. And on the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah, which by the way is coming up September 4th, on the evening of September 4th, every Orthodox Jew will read Genesis 22. That's how they start their new year. New beginnings, new life. The story of Isaac. And you know what they call the story? Not the faith of Abraham. Not the testing of Abraham. They call it the binding of Isaac. Because that's who they identify with. The passage even leads us to see that. See the promise that God makes? This is the final time that God speaks the promise to Abraham. And look at what he added this time. For the first time, he speaks of the promise in the context of Abraham's offspring. Your offspring shall possess the gates of your enemies. God's never said that before. So even God is directing us toward Isaac. Isaac is the one that we identify with. So now, what does the passage mean to us Isaac is the one we're identifying with. Here's what it means. God can be trusted to provide the substitute in order for Israel to live. That's the point of the passage. God can be trusted to provide the substitute in order for Isaac to live. And we can extend that right to ourselves today. 
God can be trusted to provide the sacrifice. Now, as the Israelites would read this story, going through their mind, the original readers of the story were brought to Egypt. They're thinking of Passover. They're thinking, a lamb was provided that I might live. They're thinking of the Passover lamb. A lamb died so that Israel can live. And later on, as the temple sacrifices are in full swing, number 28 mandated a, a morning sacrifice and an evening sacrifice. Two times a day, a dies so that Israel can live. The day told Yom Kippur, a goat dies so that Israel can live. And for us today, of course, we fast forward straight to the cross. And we see that a lamb dies so that we can live. John 1, verse 29, John the baptizer says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Mark 10, 45, Jesus said, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. It's all over the place in the New Testament. Lamb dies so that we may live. That's the point of the passage. God can be trusted to be good on His promise. He can be trusted to be good on His promise of salvation that the substitute will be sufficient. Cecilia Kachan, if you put the first slide up there, brother. Cecilia Kachan has a tattoo on her wrist. A rather unusual tattoo of an airliner. Now the reason Cecilia has that tattoo on her wrist is to remind herself every single day that she is the sole survivor of Northwest Airlines Flight 25. Depart from Detroit International Airport on the morning of April 12, 1987, on its way to Phoenix, Arizona, clipped a, airline, or clipped a light pole on its takeoff and crashed into the nearby interstate, killing all 154 people aboard except for Cecilia. The next picture is a picture of her recovering hospital because she was four years old at the time. The only survivor, the EMTs could not believe that this girl survived that plane crash. You know how she did it? As it became evident that the plane was going to crash, Cecilia's mother immediately unbuckled her own seatbelt, turned herself backwards, straddled Cecilia with her knees on the seat, and held Cecilia tight so that the majority of the trauma from the crash was absorbed by her body instead of Cecilia's. Four-year-old Cecilia could trust her mom that she would do whatever she needed to do, that she would survive. Show us the last slide. That's Cecilia today. She just got married a little while ago, by the way. Cecilia could trust her mom that whatever she would provide in the same way we can trust that the sacrifice provided is sufficient, that our salvation is secure. Paul had to be thinking about this story when he wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 8, verse 13 through, for God is for, if God is for us, who is against us? He did not spare son. A son spared. God's son was not. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How so with Him graciously give us all things? Who separate from the love of Christ? For I shoot 
neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depths, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Paul shoot that the sacrifice provided for him is sufficient. Why? Because of the testing. You see, this is not primarily a story about the testing of Abraham. This is a story about the testing of God. God tells us not to test him. He never says he won't test himself. Because what's a test? A demonstration of the character you already have. And so this story is a testing of God in sense that can't trust it. It makes no sense. It, he can be trusted to provide the sufficient substitute for us. Because a faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. Neither can a God. And that's what this passage means. Let me apply it to your life real quickly. What does it mean to not trust in the sacrifice that God has provided? What does that look like? To fail to trust that the sacrifice is sufficient. I'll tell you what it looks like. It looks like works, works righteousness. It looks like the Christian who came to God by faith in faith alone. Now feel that they are earth placed with God through what they do. They feel God faith on their obedience. Feel like that when they do this or they do that, that God is more happy with them. And when they don't do this and they don't do that, God is now happy with them. God perfectly happy with all those who are in Christ because He is perfectly happy with Christ. That's what it means to be assured that God is perfectly satisfied with the sacrifice provided and that sacrifice is perfectly sufficient. Are you trusting in that sacrifice today? Or having come to Him by faith, as Paul will say to the Galatians, who has bewitched you, you foolish Galatians, have come to God by faith, you think you're going to please Him by works. Are you resting in the sacrifice? Or are you working, failing to trust the sacrifice?